First, um, we need to lighten the load a little. Kids, I'm sorry, we're getting rid of you. Just kidding. Kids, uh, well, Ms. Lisa's back there to welcome you into your class. Uh, have a great Bible study. Then, we need to say hi to each other. We need to greet each other. So, look to the people to your right or your left. If you need to stand up for a minute and walk over to say hi to someone, tell someone hi. Do all that. If you're at home, hug your kids or something. This is the most awkward time of service for me because I realize to the people at home, I'm just a guy standing here doing nothing for like a solid two and a half minutes or so. Anyways, guys, we have been going, if you've been with us uh, for the last nine weeks now, we've been looking at the life of Jacob in a series we call Israel. Uh, We actually just got to the part last week in our story where Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Uh, because he wrestled with God and God sa- and God spared him and sa- and and uh, redeemed him, uh, but also it reminds us the word Israel literally means God fights, and so for the people of Israel it was a reminder as they were leaving Egypt and going into the Promised Land that their God fights for them and on, on their behalf as well. Um, so we've got about. Two more lessons in this uh, series, and then we're getting into, it's that Advent season, Christmas time, which in 2020, can it, it just can't come soon enough, right? Like, I'm ready to sing some Christmas songs in service. I usually am like the guy who waits till like the, at least the day after Thanksgiving uh, to start decorating, but in this year, that tree's going up this week, guys. I just got to be honest with you. Some of you already got trees up, so don't judge me, all right? Now, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 33, if you want to make your way there. So, forgiveness is one thing, but acceptance is another. See, if someone wrongs you, you might be willing to absolve them of any debt they might owe you, right? That's what forgiveness essentially is. It's absolving a debt. Or paying off a, or paying, or incurring the cost of a debt. So, if someone breaks a, is over at your house and they drop a glass and they break it, chances are you don't make them repay you for it. You don't go, well, that's going to be two fifty or something like that, right? You go, don't worry about it. It's all good. It happens. And so, what do you do? You incur the debt of the loss on yourself. Thus, the debt is forgiven. However, the bigger the debt the bigger the forgiveness has to be. And as a result, the, bi- the harder it is to accept that person and to actually want them back in your life to some extent. So, let me give you a really simple illustration. 
if I was, I grew up with a bunch of neighborhood kids, like we were all like all the kids hung out at our house and stuff. If a neighborhood kid accidentally breaks your window, you might chalk it up to kids playing too hard just once and be like, no big deal, right? If that same kid breaks the window five times, you will probably ask your kids to go play at their house next time and break their parents' windows, right? Side note, Brandon was my neighbor growing up. Anyways, (laughs) this is true of every relationship, both big and small, however. Some are harder than others, not only to forgive, but to actually move past and be reconciled. So, if brothers, uh, let me give you some more harder examples. Let's say two brothers go into business with one another. One of those brothers steals from the company. That brother is unlikely to be invited over for Thanksgiving this year. Or years when we, that's usually more the case. That might not be a thing now. But, or let me give you another one. In issues of infidelity in a marriage, the possibility of reconciliation between the couple is seldom the road that is taken. Now, what I want to show you today this is this, guys, is that when it comes to our relationship with God... There is hope not only for the forgiveness of sins, there is hope not only for the, uh, the removal of debts, but there is complete restoration as well that God offers to us. God isn't just offering, God isn't trying to forgive us our debts or forgive us our sins while, and then keep us at arm's length. Rather, he's forgiven us and so he welcomes us back in. And that's the greatest news sinners could hear from a just and holy God. Not just that I forgive you, that that is great, but that I accept you as well. That I want to have a relationship with you still. So, uh, quick recap. And by quick, I mean I'm going to get to, we're in Genesis 33. Let me give you the Cliff Notes version of Genesis 1 through 32. Really quick, in like three paragraphs on my notes. Okay, we've been going through Genesis for the bulk of this year. We've done a couple other series and such, but... Generally, we've been going through Genesis for 2020. Genesis presents the God, begins and presents the God of the Bible as the Lord of all of heaven and earth. He creates the universe and us by his own power. And then he calls us to love him, to honor him, and to trust him with our lives. However, as the story goes on, mankind prefers the idea of a life where we are the ultimate authority, a life on our terms. And so they reject the Lord's blessing and rather try to to usurp control over their lives. This leads to the introduction of sin, suffering, and death. Yet in the earliest parts of the Bible, we hear a promise of a descendant who is coming, a savior who would come and destroy the power of sin, Satan, and death. Fast forward. And we find that this promised descendant comes from a line of a man named Abraham. God calls Abraham out of his pagan past and tells him to trust in him and he will provide for Abe. He'll protect him and he will bless him. And God shows his faithfulness in Abraham's life by doing that. Now, our current study has been looking at the life of Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Now, Jacob is presented as this weaselly little twerp from the get-go, okay? Who tricks his family and especially his older brother Esau out of things in order to steal an inheritance and a blessing from him. 
So angered by his brother's deception, because his brother Jacob has basically stolen Esau's inheritance. He's, in, he's uh, is stolen this special blessing his dad wanted to give him. And so he's furious. He's got everything from him. And so Esau says, when the time comes, I'm going to murder him. This leads Jacob to flee. And so he goes to the land of his ancestors, the land of Padan Aram, for 20 years. And there, a lot happens. He meets his wife. And then he meets his other wife. He, uh, he gets tricked himself into doing these things. He, gets, uh, he, he, ends up, he leaves there. He shows up with no, no money, no one else to, sh- to show for it. He leaves with like 12 kids. He leaves with wealth and servants and all these things. And he heads back towards Israel. It's there that we learned last week. He encountered God. And God wrestled with him. And he says, you're not Jacob anymore. You're not that little twerpy heel grabber you used to be. You are Israel, for you have striven with God and man and prevailed. And so we see here this change that God has taken place in his life over 20 years. He's taken him from being that weak little brother to being someone who is willing, who is willing to fight for something. A man who, is willing, who, who, who not only that, was, was able to see the face of God and live. And so, he's come a long way in his journey. We pick up today, and there's one last big hurdle he's got to do. He's got to go meet his brother. Remember, it's been 20 years now. Long time has passed. He didn't have as much, to be honest with you, Jacob didn't have as much to lose back then. He only had his life to lose. Now he's got, he's got, he's got a family, and he puts them at risk by returning. But God said, you go back there, I'll provide for you. I'll protect you. And that's where we pick up today in Genesis 33. So, Genesis 33, starting in verse 1, we read, Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. Okay, not a good sign. Not only is his brother on his way to meet him, but he's not just like, hey, I'll come out, let's let's meet. He brings 400 men with him, an army with him. This suggests that it's bad news. So, he divided, so Jacob divided his children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front. Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And then verse 3. He himself went on before them, bowing to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now, just so basically Jacob lines up his family... As he sees Esau approaching him. Uh, this could be because if something happens and stuff goes down, the, uh, the ones in the back can start running first. But then what we see that's a real transition for Jacob is what he says here is he takes the lead. He's the one who steps out in front of all of them. Meaning, if someone's going to get killed today, let it be me. So he steps out to see what Esau has done the last time he saw him. His brother hated him. He was just waiting and plotting to kill him. And now he has the upper hand. Everything looks bad. But Jacob shows more courage than he's used to. By the way, keep in mind something here. Jacob is the one who wronged his brother. Okay? We can easily... I know like he's the, he's the protagonist in our story, so we easily look to him as like, He's all the good guy, but he's the dude who stole the blessing, right? He's the one who lied to his parents. He did all these things. He was in the wrong. And now, 
He shows that he was in the wrong by humbling himself. He bows seven times to the ground as he walks towards Esau. In other words, a way of showing like, look, I'm not here for a fight. Forgive me. This is the moment that we've been building up tension for now for weeks. What is going to happen when these two brothers meet face to face? What will happen next? Will Esau attack his brother? Will God intervene and step in like he had done for Jacob in the past? But we actually see a stranger thing happen in this story. All the tensions building up. This is the moment where you would expect, if this was a movie, this is where the big fight happens at the end. And then this is what happens. Verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. This is how our, our encounter comes to a conclusion. Not with a clashing of swords, not with a throwing of fists, but two brothers hugging and crying on each other's shoulders. That was unexpected, right? It looked like it would be a violent confrontation, but it ends in this tearful embrace. So what changed? Well, what happened to Esau that instead of killing... What happened? What changed his heart? So that instead of wanting to kill his brother, now he kisses him and weeps over him. Funny thing, the Bible doesn't tell us. It really doesn't. There's been 20 years happening in Esau's life, and it never says exactly what happened that changed his mind. It could be that, uh, if you recall, like two weeks ago, or yeah, a week ago, uh, when Jacob was escaping, his uh, father-in-law, Laban, was going out to meet him. And so he did a similar thing. He marched out with his men, and he cornered him and stuff. And God actually came to Laban in a dream, and he said, don't touch him. That's my guy. Don't say anything too nice to him, to where he wants to come back and stay, but don't say anything to hinder him from going either. Just play it cool, basically. And so God protects Jacob in that way. We don't see that kind of encounter here. We don't have this, We don't, for, to the best of our knowledge, we don't know that the, it doesn't seem like God came to Esau in a dream the night before and said, don't do, don't do nothing. And specifically, the reason we see it that suggests that is the way Esau reacts. See, it'd be one thing if he said, hold back that anger, and he held back his anger. He doesn't hold back his anger. He cries in his brother's arms right here. He's literally like, where have you been for 20 years? It could be any number of things. Um... However, the details here give us no reason to suggest that Esau's actual tearful reuniting with his brother is anything but sincere. But let me suggest one reason that seems at least implied by this story. God has been working on Esau these past 20 years as well. See, we've been following Jacob's story all along, but it turns out even in the places where we weren't focusing... God was doing a work on somebody, right? He was actually, even as Jacob was in uh, the land of Padan Aram, serving his, uh, his father-in-law for 20 years, God was also preparing the land for Jacob's return, so to speak. He was getting it ready for him. What we see is that God knew exactly the right time to bring Jacob home. So what does that teach us there? Well, it teaches us, it shows us that while God might be working on your heart, he is not only working on your heart. See, we don't know all the ways in which God is working. Our job isn't to know the details. It's to be faithful to what God has called us to do. 
This actually reminds me of something Jesus said to his disciples. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, 38, he says this. He tells the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, understand, Jesus is talking figuratively here when he talks about a harvest. He's talking about people. He's talking about people coming to faith. And he's literally telling his disciples that there are more people out there ready to receive the gospel than we have ready people to share the gospel at this point in time. And so he gives them this instruction. He says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. That's who God is. He's the Lord of the harvest. He's the one in charge of the workers as well as the fruit of the labor. Point is, God is working in ways that you and I don't even realize it. So don't sell God short on what he's doing in the world. So these two brothers come together and they catch up. Esau asks him, what's with all these kids? Which is a reasonable answer with 12 kids behind him. Uh, And so Jacob tells him, uh, verse 5, the children, these are the children whom God has graciously given your servant. So Esau meets the family. Then he asks Jacob, what's the deal with all this stuff you sent me? See, earlier, Jacob had basically sent a giant gift package uh, to Esau as a way to keep him from killing him. So, you know, he wanted to cool down his anger. And so he thought, if I send a big gift package out there for him, He'll, he'll forgive me. He'll accept me. He'll be like, you know what? I'm not going to kill this guy. But Jacob, Esau shows up and he's like, what's the deal with all the gifts? And Jacob responds, verse 8, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. That's a polite way of saying, so you don't murder me. Verse 9, Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight... Then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt gracious with, graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus, thus he urged him, and he took it. Jacob urges Esau to take this gift, and he uses a really weird statement here, to be honest with you. Did you catch that? Verse 10. He says, this to Je- he says this to Esau. He says, I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. What does he mean there? What on earth does that statement mean? Well, to understand this, you have to understand what just happened in the story prior to this. Jacob actually saw God face to face. He met with God, and he describes his encounter with God this way. Genesis chapter 32, verse 30. He says, For I have seen God face to face, And yet my life has been delivered. My life has been saved. My life has been spared. Just as it was in God's power to end Jacob's life. So just as it was in God's power to do harm to Jacob when he encountered him. So it was in Esau's power to do so to Jacob here. He had the ability to harm Jacob. To kill Jacob. Yet just the same way as God spared Jacob when he saw his face when they wrestled. So, he, so Esau has also spared him as well. That's what he's saying here. Just like I saw God's face and he spared my life, I saw you and you spared my life. But he doesn't say delivered here. The wording's changed a little bit. See, 
When, God, when Jacob saw God, he said, my life has been spared or delivered. When he sees Esau, he uses a different word. He says, you have accepted me. This adds a new dimension to how we might see how God has, been, uh, has rescued him. We see here that there's not only forgiveness and the sparing of his life, mercy... But there's restoration. There is a restored relationship here. Or, let me give you the word that we are fans of here. Jacob and Esau have been reconciled to one another. What Jacob's encounter with Esau teaches Jacob is that God has not only delivered him, God also welcomes him back in. He sees something in his... Jacob is wise and he sees something in his interaction with Esau here. Now, it's not because Esau's a great guy. It's not because Esau's some godly man. It's because Jacob recognizes that the interaction he's having with Esau is similar to an interaction he had with God. And he realizes the same God who was at work yesterday is at work today. So, Esau basically says, hey, you know what, bro? Let's go on ahead. But Jacob responds, I can't, I can't. I have livestock, I've got little kiddos, i got to take it slow. You go ahead and I'll meet up with you. Um, after a bit of negotiating, Esau agrees and heads back to his home, which is called Seir, which is a mountain region in the land of Edom. Verse 16, we learn about uh, Jacob as well. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and, and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is Sukkoth. So, whenever the Bible gives you the reason behind a name, there's something significant there, right? Like, so, there's lots of names in the Bible, but every once in a while it stops and goes, so this is why it's named this. Here, it tells us a little bit about it. It basically says, uh, Jacob stopped, and he set up camp, and he set up camp, uh, like a temporary home, and he set up, um, you know, basically booths or tents, uh, for his livestock. And the word, it says the place was known as Sukkoth. Now, if you come from a Jewish background, you know exactly what that word means. The word Sukkoth is actually the same word that's used to describe a Jewish festival, uh, which is usually called Sukkoth, or as we read it in the Bible, the Feast of Booths, this Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tents. Basically what it was is... Um, it, it was the, and so when the, so when the audience hears this word, it's a very loaded word. They hear it and they go, that's why this place is called Sukkoth. It's like if I said, and that's why that place is named Christmas. You'd be like, oh, Christmas. I know that word. That's a holiday. Same kind of idea is happening here. Basically, what this was, what Sukkoth or the Feast of Booths was, is every year the Israelites had to take a camping trip. Um, this is, I had a... <laughs> I had a uh, professor in seminary that said, if you take the Bible seriously, everybody's got to take three weeks off a year and one week you got to go camping because that's what the Old Testament told the Israelites basically to do. And so this, I, basically what would happen is uh, the, there were the, the Jewish people, the native Jewish people, uh, the Israelites would take a camping trip once a year and they would, li- they would stay out in tents as a way to commemorate the time they spent in the wilderness, traveling from slavery to Egypt and to their own nation in Canaan. By the way, those people staying in tents right there is the original audience for which Genesis would have been intended and written for. So those are the people, as he says this, these are people literally living in Sukkot, 
So they hear this and they go, oh, that's like me. So listen to how Moses describes the festival. Leviticus chapter 22, verses 41 for 43. Uh, Lamar loves it when I read through Leviticus. All right, it says, You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It's a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it seven months. You shall dwell in booths or tents for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Okay, so what's the significance here? Clearly by remarking on this location and the name of it, the author wants the audience to see themselves in Jacob to some extent. Um, they want, he wants them to see themselves, he wants the, the audience to see that you're in this same spot right now. Where's Jacob? He's in this weird in-between spot. In one sense, he's left the place he was at, but he's not quite in the land God had prepared for him yet either. He's in the weird in-between. Often, our lives are the same way. We are, in a lot of ways, living in the weird in-between of life. We are, in some sense, not living in the life we once lived, but not quite exactly in the life God has in store for us for eternity. We exist in this transition period between a life enslaved to sin and being completely removed from the power and presence of sin. As anyone who's gone through such a period can tell you, guys, it's kind of a weird time. Right? And so you know it's going to get better, but it's not quite there yet. That's where Jacob is. That's where the Israelites were. To some extent, that's where we are. Hang tight, though. God has a plan, and he always brings his plans to completion. The message is to stay strong in the in-between and trust the Lord. Uh, Verse 18, we read about this. It says, And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem which is in the land of Canaan. He's finally made it back to the land. And on his way from Padan Aram, he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he brought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Finally, Jacob's made his way home to the place of his grandfather. So he buys a piece of land, builds an altar, making good on a promise God had already made to him. See, long ago, God had promised him this. He says, or he promised to bring him back. And Jacob said, if God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house, then the Lord shall be my God. This is Jacob's way of saying God did exactly what he said he would do. He said he would keep me safe. He said he would bring me back here. And he has absolutely done that. He's returned home. So once again, Jacob builds an altar, a memorial of this meeting between God and man, which he names El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. This double use of the word El, meaning God, is a recognition that the God of Israel is not merely the God of Israel. So while he is the God of Israel, he is God, the God of Israel. In other words... He is not limited to the borders of Israel the way other gods would be that people might think of. Uh, In this time, people often had ideas of regional gods, so to speak. It's a declaration that the descendants of Jacob, Israel, uh, that God did not come to power when they entered the promised land. 
He ruled and reigned even before they set foot in that land. So what do we learn from this? Well, here's the big idea for you. Guys, every week I like to give you a big takeaway, uh, which I call the big idea. Here is it for this week. God will do all that he promised. Not only that, but he will use everything possible to fulfill that promise and that purpose. He used 20 years of service to prepare Jacob for what he had in store for him next. But even while Jacob was away, he was also preparing the land for him, changing the heart of his brother Esau so that he did not kill him, making it so that he could could live in the land he had always promised for him. There were long seasons of waiting, and no no doubt some of those seasons were probably awful, guys. But God was working all along. So where are you at today? Where does God have you? Are you in the thick of it like Jacob was uh, during 20 years of hard labor? Are you anxious about the future holds like Jacob waiting to see his brothers faced after so many years? Guys, I don't know where you're at today, but what I want you to know is that if you trust in the Lord, he's got you on this. He is with you on this. He knows what he's doing, and you can trust him, even if you don't understand yet how it's all going to work out. Chances are you'll get there and find out that God was doing a whole lot of things that you were not aware of at the time. God was preparing something for you. And then here's the good news. The same God who's delivered us also accepts us. God both rescued and accepted Jacob. He embraces him and rejoices in his return. For those of you guys who know your Bible, it actually sounds a lot like the return of the prodigal son. I think you need to hear this this week, guys. God delights when we return to him. He rejoices in a changed life. So don't walk through life thinking he wants nothing to do with you simply because of your past. The Lord desires a relationship with you. If he didn't, he would have never sent his son to die. See, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, that he died for our offenses so that we could be restored, reconciled to a relationship with God, is the guarantee that he will do exactly what he says he will do. He will save us completely from sin's penalty, its power, and its presence. All he asks of us is to trust him, to put our faith in him. And so my question for you to consider this week is simply this. Do you? Will you? Bow your heads, let's pray. Father God, you are great. Your mercy and kindness endures. God, help us to trust in you.